Good morning, church family. Please stand. <laughs> Good morning, Pastor Chris. Please stand for the reading of the opening scripture. Today we're reading Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let all peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded, yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Ready for worship?
Good morning, church family. I hope you guys are having. Hey, buddy. Good morning. Hope you guys are having a great morning. Uh, I promise you, you are not going to regret uh, being here this morning. My name is Brandon Bentley. I am the student pastor here at Capshaw, and I want to let you know that we have been praying. Uh, not only our staff, but our elders have been praying for you uh, this week. We've been praying uh, many, uh, many specific prayer requests, but also been praying for our church family. So please know that you have been prayed for this week. If there's something that we can pray for you specifically, however. In the seat back in front of you, you'll find what used to be, well, I guess it is the, the, uh, the Connect Card substitute, and uh, it is a QR code that you can take a picture of, and it'll send you to our digital Connect Card, and you can let us know how we can pray for you and your family there. Also, uh, if there's something specifically you'd like for us to pray for, you can also send us an email at elders at capshaw.org. Uh, once again, it's something that we, we, uh, we'd love to do. We'd love to pray for our church family. And also, on that Connect card, there's something that you would like specific information about to help you connect better with our church family. We would love to, uh, you can fill that out. We'd love to answer any questions that we possibly can. This morning, Pastor John is beginning a new series through the book of Acts. And I'm going to tell you what I told our first service is the dude has been pumped about it. Like, he has been studying away like crazy. And uh, uh, But on this side of it, since I sat through the first service, I can tell you, you will not regret being here. It is going to be a phenomenal morning. The dude is going to bring it, so just, just go ahead and be ready. So, uh, And that's a good thing. So anyways, I've set the bar for you, by the way. So uh, the worship was good, too, yeah. But, um, but Pastor John is going to bring it, so just be ready. But anyways, come on, dude, why are you going to be able Anyways. Anyways, that being said, we are glad that you're here. You're not going to regret it, but let's continue worshiping God and making much of His name this morning, uh, not only through the reading and teaching of His Word, but through music worship. There you go.
that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. By grace I of Christ, my Lord. 
your grace that I cannot explain, not by my earthly wisdom. The Prince of Life, without a stain, was traded for this sinner. By grace I am redeemed, by grace I am restored, and now I freely walk into the arms of Christ. Let praise rise up and overflow, my song resound forever. For grace will see me welcomed home to walk beside my Savior. By grace I am redeemed, by grace I am restored, and now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. By grace I am redeemed, by grace I am restored, and now I freely walk into the arms of Christ, my Lord. Thank you, worship team. Yeah, go ahead and have a seat, church family. Uh, so good uh, to see you today. I'm so glad that you're with us. And if you are uh, watching online at home, welcome. If you're at home and you are sick, there's a good chance that uh, we brought your name before the Lord this week as we prayed for those who are uh, suffering from uh, COVID as well as other ailments uh, and sicknesses. So uh, hopefully you are on the mend and we will continue to pray for you. Um, if you are new with us, um, I've been meeting new families each of the last few weeks. If you're new with us, uh, my name is John. I'd love to, I guess according to Pastor Brandon, I guess I'm now the dude. But um, uh, although I think that's a nickname that uh, was taken because of an 80s uh, sort of cult movie. But um, Anyway, my name is John. I'd love to meet you. You can, you can introduce yourself uh, either by uh, email or at the end of the service. Uh, I'll be up front. I'll have my mask on. would love to, uh, to meet you. Um, or if you do have any questions about our church, why we do what we do or what we believe or how we operate as a staff, you can send email. You can email me directly or you can also email uh, us at info at capshaw.org. So uh, please take advantage of that. Let's go to the, war, uh, the Lord in prayer as we get started. Father in heaven, we want to confess that uh, we cannot come to you because of anything that we have achieved or accomplished or merited by our good works or the family we were born into or anything like that. As uh, the last song we sang together and the first song we sang together both make so clear, um, it is entirely by grace, entirely because of the finished and complete work of Christ who paid it all, who paid for our rebellion on the cross that we can now boldly and joyfully and humbly and eagerly approach you. 
And Father, we praise you for that, uh, that privilege, that awesome privilege that we as redeemed sinners, as broken people, should gain an audience before the living God. And we praise you. Uh, what an awesome thing. Uh, Father, we ask this morning as we uh, look together at your word that you would give us the uh, requisite humility, that you would give us a, a desire, uh, in fact, even a longing to see you glorified in our lives. And uh, we know that we're going to desperately need your grace throughout, uh, not just at the point of salvation. We need the work of your spirit. And I want to pray, Father, this morning that you would cause your spirit to be at work and active uh, for our good, uh, for your glory, and also for the benefit of those who do not know you. Uh, Father, we will praise you in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn me to Acts uh, chapter 1. Acts is the first New Testament book to follow uh, the four Gospels. At least three times over the last eight years, uh, my family and I have taken a driving trip cross-country typically from Chicagoland area to somewhere in Southern California. It's about 2,000 miles, a little over 2,000 miles, I guess, in total. And uh, whenever I tell people that we're either preparing for such a trip or we just got back from such a trip, I either get one of two responses. The first one is, oh, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. Where, where did you go and what did you see and, and what was on the, uh, the agenda and so on? And that sounds like a blast. Now, most of the time, People say, when I tell them that I've taken a driving trip, especially when our kids were younger, they say, why would you do such a thing? I mean, what's wrong with you? Why would you subject yourself to that? And I understand both perspectives. Uh, 26 hours in a car, especially with young kids, is, is a long time. And you have, the, you, know, you have the endless bathroom breaks. And it always blows my mind that for a 26-hour trip, you can't go more than 15 minutes after you leave the house without someone having to use a restroom. It always happens like this. You make 20 miles and there's a, there's a bathroom break. But you have people fighting, you know, kids fighting over who's on uh, whose side of the seat and, and where are we going to eat and I don't want to eat there and when are we going to eat? I want to eat sooner than we're eating. And so I totally understand uh, those looks of incredulity. Why would someone do such a thing? Um, but for me, there's something, there's something energizing, there's something encouraging, uh, there's something, I don't know, life-giving, I would say, about just kind of leaving all of us in the car, going across country, uh, being able, especially in the car where you can take side trips and you can alter the plans and you can see things on the spur of the moment. And so I really love that sort of thing. I, I love a good journey with the people I love. Well, this morning we are beginning a journey together a journey through the book of Acts, which details the birth and the expansion of the Christian church. And this is really an epic journey. This is an epic story. It's, you know, just like the sort of your, your favorite mythological story, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or whatever is your favorite, this story has all the greatest elements. It has magic. It has mystery. It has murder. Uh, it has suspense, it has intrigue, uh, it has conflict, it has a courtroom trial, more than one courtroom trial. Um, it has uh, more than a few sort of close encounters and narrow escapes. So it has all the things that a great story includes, only the difference between this story and the, one, the other ones I mentioned is this is actually a true, real, historical account. 
this book of Acts that we're going to be in. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, or maybe you started reading um, in preparation for this series, you know that it has 28 chapters, and maybe you're thinking, how in the world are we going to get through this book in less than 10 years? It took us uh, five months to get through Philippians. How are we going to do this book in that short amount of time? Uh, well, here's, here's how we're going to do it. You know, the Bible is God's Word to us. It, it's, it's not a story about us necessarily. It's a story about God, His salvation through the person and work of His Son. But it is delivered. It's a story that God tells through different genres. And by genre, I just mean types of literature. And so there's poetry, right? And there's, there are songs. In fact, we just sung one of the very psalms out of the Bible, Psalm 23. Uh, there's law. There's wisdom. There are Proverbs. We spent the last three weeks uh, studying the, uh, parts of the Proverbs, and I'm so grateful for, for your feedback. So thank you for that. Um, there are all kinds of genres within this story, and one of the uh, most common genres is called historical narrative, which means true story. And you know how it is when you, when you get a letter, you know, when, when, you, when you receive a... We don't get a lot of handwritten letters anymore. Some people still write those. Well, when you get a letter in the mail, you, you open it up and you kind of hang on every word. You read every word very carefully. When Janine and I started dating as sophomores in college, you know, we had that first year of dating, and then we had to separate and go to our respective homes. And so I went to Dayton, Ohio, and she went to Northwest Indiana. We spent the summer apart, and this is before texting and TikTok and Snapchat and all those things. So we actually had to write letters to each other, which we did. And when I got a letter uh, from Janine, I, I didn't just sort of glance at it and try to get an overview. I looked and I, I, I read every single word. I, I hung on every single word. So much so that I made the mistake one time pointing out a spelling error in one of her love letters. And then I noticed that I started to get fewer and fewer letters. But, um, uh, but, but you pay attention to the words in a letter. But when you read a story, when you, when you take in an epic story, you don't pause to parse every word. If you ever watched a movie with someone and you can't get five minutes along until they're saying, hey, who's that? Wait, what's going on here? Like, I don't recognize that person. What's next? Have you, what's going on here? Um, that's kind of miserable, isn't it? Appreciate my own family not saying amen to that because I do that. Um, but you don't do that with an epic story. You let the drama sort of draw you in and you look at it from a different uh, perspective. Well, preaching through the biblical narratives is different than preaching through the letters. When you're preaching through a letter, you might spend, we might spend an entire Sunday morning, 38 or 40 minutes on three verses, like we did that in Philippians once. But you don't do that when you're going through the stories. You, you, you look at bigger chunks and you, you learn as the drama unfolds. And so that's what we're going to do with the, the book of Acts. Um, we're going to take basically one chapter a week, and we'll have some breaks along the way. We'll break, of course, for Easter, and we'll break for the summer probably. But, um, but we'll, we'll take one chapter at a time, and we won't fully exposit or explain every verse in the chapter. Um, in fact, I'm going to talk about this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, and then I will make reference to the other parts. But that's, we're going to take more of a big picture view as this story draws us in and we see just some beautiful, powerful, and amazing things about God's plan of salvation. So uh, let me start by reading verses 1 through 5 of uh, Acts chapter 1. 
Here reads the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So right away, verse 1 tells us that this is actually a follow-up book to Theophilus. We don't know really specifically who this was. We, we believe that he was probably a sort of high-ranking Roman official. But this is a follow-up book to Theophilus by the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke, which was, of course, Luke. Now, we don't know Luke was a historian. He was a physician. Uh, Luke, was a, he became actually very good friends with the Apostle Paul. And according to, to tradition, he also spent time interviewing Jesus' mother, Mary. So you can only imagine uh, you know, how those conversations went, Mary being able to tell things about Jesus, um, or all, of course, sinless things, but things about Jesus that perhaps no one else uh, had ever heard. And so um, not only did Luke write the Gospel of Luke, uh, this so-called first book, but also wrote the book of Acts. And they were, in fact, one volume in the first century, one two-part volume known as Luke-Acts. Um, now, of course, they weren't hardbound books back then. There was no printing press, and so books were written on parchment, a papyri, which was rolled up, and sometimes if you unrolled it, it could be as long as 25 feet or 30 feet. Um, originally, again, two parts of a single volume, but somewhere around the early part of the second century or mid-second century, we believe, the church really began to categorize and centralize the, the Gospels, and so those four were put together, and Luke and Acts were, uh, were separated into, again, uh, those two parts. And when Luke begins part two, which is what I just read, the, the first five verses of Acts 1, it's kind of like when a TV show, uh, the intro, when it says, previously on, right? It's like, previously on NCIS. Now, everybody who's 60 year old is like, yeah, that's my favorite show. Everybody who's under 60 is like, what's NCIS? Like, what, was that a new show or something? But what he's saying is, he's saying, th th previously, this is what happened previously in the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something very important. And if you're under 60 and you like NCIS, please don't be offended at that. Um, I'm sure it's, a, I've never seen it. I'm under 60. I'm sure it's a great show, though. Um, but I want to notice, I want to point out something very important in verse 1, and it's the word began. Look at verse 1 again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first volume, the Gospel of Luke, also written to Theophilus, tells what Jesus began to do and teach. And the second part, the book of Acts, tells us what Jesus continued to do as the risen Christ. And it's what he's still doing to build his church. The full name of this book, as you see by the superscript, is the, the Acts of the Apostles, um, that's not an inspired title that was added later, um, and that's a fine title, but I, th I don't think it really captures the essence of the book. I, I think a better title would actually be this, The Continuing Acts of the Risen Christ by His Spirit Through His Disciples. 
Now, that's a little burdensome, so I'm not going to ask you to refer to this book as that. But that's really a better description of what goes on in this uh, book. And And I begin there because I want you to know that Acts is not some past tense academic history that doesn't apply to us. It's not like something you read in school that has no ongoing uh, benefit or involvement. This is the story. In fact, we sung about, we, we have sung together about God's grace. This is the story of God's grace as it is advanced from community to city, state, to nation, and ultimately across the world. And as we're going to see this morning, we're actually part of that story. So look at verse 3 again. He, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days after his resurrection, roughly seven weeks, uh, six weeks rather, uh, Jesus spent time with his disciples, eating with them and, and walking with them and talking with them and teaching them and actually sharing with them his very life. So he's involved in their lives. He's around them. And then he commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to stay until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 4 says that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God poured out from God on high. And we're going to talk more about that, much more about that as we get into this book. But I want to look in earnest at verses 6 through 11. So follow along if you would. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, key phrase for this book, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by with them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is not a great start to this global mission. This is a a very inauspicious beginning to this multiplying movement. Jesus has spent this time with his disciples, and he has engaged them. He's teaching them. He's allowing them to be around him and to see how he handles situations. And then he commissions them with this task, uh, which is basically a reiteration of sorts of the Great Commission. And what do they do? They're they're fixated on what the end times are going to look like. They're fixated on what's going to happen in the end. What do they ask Jesus? They say, Jesus, when are you going to restore Israel? When are you going to wrap all of this up? and restore us to our rightful place. And Jesus says, basically, look, don't worry about it. It's not for you to know the specifics, the things that belong to the Father. What you need to be concerned about is telling other people what you've seen and heard about me. So here's our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. God has not called us to speculate about the unknown but to bear witness to what he has revealed in, through, and concerning Jesus. When Jesus gave the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, again, which he kind of reiterates here, he started a movement. 
This was a movement that would reproduce itself. Disciples making disciples. Churches planting other churches. And kind of like a ripple effect in a still pond, the, the influence would be ever-expanding. And so he, he, he launches this multiplying movement and so that the multitudes of the earth would hear the gospel and the fame of God and the glory of God would take center stage among all the earth. And now we are part of that movement. We are part of that ever-expanding mission. We are called to be witnesses. Now, that, that, the Greek word translated witness is used almost 40 times in the book of Acts. It's a very central theme in this book. Now, what does it mean to be a witness? Well, it has a bit of Old Testament history, and, and we're not going to get into much of that this morning. But what I will say is to bear witness has always been to testify, that is, to tell the truth about something that you have seen and heard yourself. When COVID uh, just started to gain steam, I did this video series on Facebook interviewing biblical scholars and professors from really all over the country. And what I try to do is pick someone who was, a, who was an expert at a particular area of theology or a book of the Bible and interviewed a guy who's written books on heaven and the new earth and so on. And, and then I interviewed one guy, Dr. Dennis uh, Johnson, who who is a professor, retired professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, and, and he's an expert in the book of Hebrews. And we talked about this idea of witnesses, and, and we said, Hebrews 12, which tells us to, to not forsake running, but to run because you have a cloud of witnesses, right? And he said what so often people think is that it's like we're running you, you know, a track in a, in a coliseum, and the witnesses are in the stands, and they're cheering us on. They're saying, you can do this, and be strong, and, and you, you got this, and so on. I don't know if you've ever been to a a cross-country meet, but you know, you kind of run alongside and you cheer the people running. But he said, that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, not that sort of witnesses. It's not like a fan club. The witnesses that he's talking about are, are those who are more like witnesses in a courtroom testifying to us that God is faithful to His promises. So it's those people who have seen more and experienced more and have a broader perspective bearing witness to the faithfulness of God. This is what a witness does. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. Now, there's gonna, there will be aspects of this book of Acts that, that apply more directly to the original apostles. In other words, there are some things that happen in the apostolic age that we shouldn't expect to see repeated. No, no one is going to touch you know, the edge of our clothes and, and, and be healed from something. I mean, most likely, right? So there, there are aspects that are specific to the apostolic age but there's certainly application that will extend. And as it relates to this idea of being a witness, we're, none of us in this room uh, has seen the risen Lord. You know, we, we're not eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. But we can testify to His resurrection power in bringing us to life who were spiritually dead, in healing us from our brokenness, and reconciling us and giving us a transcendent peace that, that goes beyond all understanding. We cannot say, I have seen the risen Christ, but we can say, I have seen the power of the resurrected Christ, and here's how I've seen it. And we're bearing witness uh, to those things. That's what we've been called to do. But what a lot of Christians do is they want to spend their time speculating on what's not been revealed. 
how many of us worry about and, and constantly try to guess, how are things going to go under this new presidential regime? How are things going to go in the Supreme Court? How are things going to go in our country? What changes will we see? How many of us spend more of our time fixated on the end times, signs and symbols, rather than loving our neighbor who's right in front of us? There was a man in the previous church that I served who was, frankly, one of the most miserable people that I'd ever met, and still holds that title to this day. Um, he was always complaining, always criticizing, always had a better way that something should be done, although he himself never wanted to do anything. Um, but one day after I finished a sermon, he, he approached me rather briskly, and he said, when are you going to preach through Revelation? I said, you know, I, I don't really know. Like, I, I plan out my sermon series a full year in advance, but I, I don't know about Re Revelation. I said, why? He said, I'd just like to hear your explanation on the view of the seven bowls in Revelation 16. I said, to him, I said to him, I'd like to hear your explanation of why Yoda's head is the shape it is in the Mandalorian. I didn't really say that. That's what I wanted to say. Mandalorian wasn't around then. But I wanted to ask him a bizarre question and say, what's the point? I mean, why does this matter so much to you? How is this going to help you love your neighbor better? How is this going to help you love your wife better? How is this going to help you uh, reach the world for Christ, but he was just fixated on these, these bowls in Revelation. Some people, they're so obsessed with and enamored by trying to figure out the signs in the Middle East that they don't even know their neighbors. Their neighbors don't know that they care for them. I'm not minimizing the importance of the, the, the area of theology called eschatology, which is end times. I think there's value. Of course there's value. But again, if we're so fixated on what's going to happen in the future, trying to figure things out, we're actually violating what Christ said there, and that's where to focus on bearing witness about what we've seen and heard and what we know to be true. We're called to tell the truth, to bear witness about Jesus. And naturally, this is going to be hard. Um, if you can think back on the last time you shared your faith with someone, um, you know that there are all kinds of challenges uh, inherent. And, but put yourself in the apostles' shoes. Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and tell people about me. Now, what do you think they're thinking? They're thinking, you mean the place where they just killed you only a few weeks ago? You want us to go and then talk about you and how you've risen from the dead? And Jesus says, yeah, if you survive that, I want you to go to Samaria. And they think, you mean that place where they hate all, all Jewish people with a passion? We ourselves being Jewish people, you want us to go there and you want us to talk about you? Yeah, that, that's what I want. And if you survive that, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. Now, remember, these are ordinary people. These aren't well-educated, extraordinary, gifted evangelists, right? These aren't people who had all the tools. These are people who uh, were commoners. They were, they were day laborers. They were fishermen, most of them. They did not, they weren't, you know, expertly uh, equipped for this sort of thing. I'm sure they probably thought, uh, Jesus, do you have, we, we have no idea where the end of the earth is, where you drop off the earth into the abyss. We don't even know what you're talking about. Now, some scholars argue that the phrase, the ends of the earth, is a reference to Rome, uh, but I think it's actually broader than that. Jesus wants his disciples to go and make other disciples who will also go even to the end of the earth. Uh, New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall writes, Instead of indulging in wishful thinking or apocalyptic speculation, the disciples must accomplish their task of being witnesses to Jesus. The scope of their task is worldwide. 
Now, we, we can't really put ourselves in the mind of the disciples, but we can say this. This must have been a terrifying notion, absolutely terrifying. But Jesus promises them divine assistance. They will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And as we're going to see as we work our way through the rest of this book, and we're going to see even early in this book a very important point, and it's our second one this morning. The Holy Spirit is a gift to Christ's church. He enables God's people to fulfill God's mission. Now, I mentioned when we were studying the book of John that you know, it's easy for us to think about the Holy Spirit as kind of this force, right? This impersonal force, like, like in Star Wars, you know, he's kind of a force where we understand the relationship, we understand our Father, Abba Father, we, we, we get that and we have some sort of frame of reference as it relates to our earthly fathers and, and we understand Jesus, we read the Gospels about Jesus, He's our brother, He's our friend, He's our Savior, our Lord. But the Holy Spirit, we just, it's hard for us to really figure out, like, how do we approach, what, is it, what does He do, what's He like, and so on. But the Scriptures present the Holy Spirit as doing things only a person can do, not a force, a person. And the reality is the Holy Spirit is just as personal, just as loving, fully equal to the Father and the Son. We just, again, we don't know really what to do with Him. But here Jesus says that the Holy Spirit would empower the disciples for their witness. So yes, Jesus sends all disciples into a hostile world to testify about Him, to tell the truth about who He is and what He's done. But His disciples are not alone. And we are not alone. The Holy Spirit will embolden us and empower us and enable us to do what God has called us to do. You know, when I see one of my neighbors outside, uh, on either side of me or across the street, I will sometimes walk over and try to think about how to start a conversation. And, and I, I, I know for sure that some of you are way better at this than I am. Because sometimes I, I don't know what to just go up and start a random small talk conversation, but I try. And sometimes when I'm having those conversations, what I think about is, how can I find a way to naturally steer this toward a spiritual conversation. And if I'm being candid with you, that's not easy. It's very hard because, you know, I, I talked to two of my neighbors yesterday. One showed me his new car, his dream car, a BMW 7 Series with all this stuff, and he was showing me all of that. And then another of my neighbor, we were talking about tools, bolts and widgets. Like, I, I, I didn't have any idea how to actually steer this to a spiritual conversation. But what I have noticed over the years is as I've tried to do that, the Holy Spirit, with great power, goes ahead and softens and prepares and readies a person. I had a conversation with a neighbor once on trick-or-treat night that turned into a lengthy discussion on justification by faith alone. And here's a guy who was part of a Roman Catholic church, although he didn't go to the Roman Catholic church, and, and we went from talking about, I don't know, Tootsie Roll Pops to justification. And this was the Spirit's work. I talked to a neighbor one time at the edge of our driveways on goals for the new year. And by the power of the Spirit, God used that conversation to start a series of conversations through which God brought that man, his wife, and his whole family to saving faith. And I had the privilege of baptizing the whole family. Now they're, the son, who's like 19 years old or something, he's considering pastoral ministry as a vocation. That was the Spirit of God at work. All I did was start a conversation. 
Sometimes we, we, we start those conversations and we don't know where to go, but the Spirit of God, He guides and He gives us the, the boldness and the power. I had a conversation recently with a neighbor who asked me out of the blue, we were talking about something totally different, out of the blue, he said, what's the deal with Calvinism anyway? I'm like, that, that, where does that come from? That's nothing at all like we're talking about. But this was the Spirit of God. I was able to talk to him about God's sovereign grace and the work of the Spirit and all of these things. So, so the Spirit of God is at work when we bear witness to Jesus. I love what the late pastor and scholar R.C. Sproul writes. He says, Jesus declared the sending of the Holy Spirit upon them, upon His church, to empower their mission. The mission of the church, the reason we exist, is to bear witness to the present reign and rule of Christ who is at the right hand of God. If we try to do this in our own power, we will fail. And how many times have I recognized that experientially? The reason for the outpouring of the Spirit is not to make us feel spiritual. It's not to give us a spiritual high. It is so we can do the job that Jesus gave the church to do. So our responsibility, your responsibility, is not to have all the answers. Because we're not going to have all the answers. Our responsibility is not to save anyone We can't do the work of salvation. Our responsibility, given to us by the risen Christ, is to tell the truth about what we know and have seen and experienced through Jesus Christ. Now, what do we say about Jesus? What is the truth? Well, we're going to see in this book that He is Savior and Lord. He is the fulfillment of every one of God's promises in the Old Testament. We don't have time for it, but if we look to the last part of verse uh, chapter 1, we're going to see Peter's brief sermon where he points out in his sermon, this Christ is the Mashiach, the Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. He was resurrected, raised from the dead so that those who turn from their sin and trust in Him could experience eternal life that begins right now. He is the Savior of all who believe, making complete and total forgiveness possible. He is the Lord of the universe. We're not, the message we're spreading is not one day Jesus will reign, but that He reigns right now. And we will continue with that message until everyone acknowledges and experiences His reign. And when we introduce people to Jesus, the Savior and Lord of the world, we don't have to convince them of the beauty of Jesus. We don't have to persuade them. We, we don't have to convict them. This is what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings people to repentant faith. And I have to tell you, as one who's done this and failed at it many times in terms of trying to do the work of evangelists, this is a great relief to me that success is not on me. It's not on my wordsmithing. It's not on my phraseology. It's not on if I smile enough or whatever. The, Lord, the Spirit of God is the one who brings about the, the new birth. And so, you know, Jesus said... The Holy Spirit in John 3, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. Cannot be tamed, cannot be contained, cannot be controlled, cannot be cajoled. In fact, the word for spirit in the Hebrew language is the same word for wind, ruach. It's the word, and it, it, it gives us the indication that the Spirit of God is going to be at work, and we can't direct it, and we can't control it. Now, you may have someone in your life who, even this morning, feels like, It just seems to be totally beyond the salvation of God. Maybe it's someone in your immediate family. Maybe it's someone in your extended family. Maybe it's an adult 
child of yours. Maybe it's a neighbor who just is continually haunting you and berating you. Maybe it's a boss, whatever it is. There's someone in your life you feel like that, that person, of all the people in the world, that person just has no chance. Well, here's the reality of it. That person doesn't stand a chance against the Spirit of the Almighty God. Those whom the Lord has chosen, He will bring to salvation. And for a reason known only to Him, He has decided to use us, fickle and broken and tongue-tied as we are, as instruments. We're just, we're just casting the seed. We're just kicking away the rocks. We're just moving the boulders, right? We're just tilling up the dirt. But He is the one who gives life to things that are dead. Now, there's one other thing I want, to see, want you to see this morning from this passage. It's so beautiful. Not only does God promise the Holy Spirit to empower us and embolden us and, and enable us to do His work, but we also have the ongoing presence and support of the risen Christ. So after Jesus said these things to His disciples, there were 11 at that moment, and He, he literally, literally, and a word I use intentionally, rose from the earth into the skies, got covered by the clouds, and the disciples, we know they just stood there looking up, gazing in, in complete wonder. They had no idea what to make of this. So He disappears before them, and there were two men there in white uh, raiments. There, we, this is Mark tells us, gives us a clue, these are angels, two angels standing there. And they say, why, why do you keep looking up? The task at hand is on this level. I remember my, my oldest son, he's 23 now, he was just a, a, he was a little kid, he was four years old, and, uh, and he had, I had promised him that I would give him some ice cream later in the day, this is early in the afternoon, and, um, and I said, yeah, I said, Quinn, I'll give you some ice cream, but let's just wait till later. So he approached me about an hour later, and he said, hey, Dad, he called me Daddy then, Daddy, can I have my ice cream now? I said, not, not right now, but I, I'll get it for you later. And then he asked me an hour after that, he said, uh, can, I, can I please have my ice cream? I said, pretty soon. I'm right in the middle of something, but I'll get your ice cream. He came up to me an hour later for a third time. He said, Daddy, can, can I please have my ice cream? You promised me. And I said, Quinn, I'm going to get you some ice cream. I, I told you I would, um, but you don't have to ask me every hour. And I remember his, he had this big round face, these big eyes at four years old. He looked at me and he said, you told me you were going to get me some ice cream. Now let's get to business. And, of course, I was, you know, kind of like taken aback by that. I mean, but, uh, but he was right. How many times have I, had I told him I was going to get him some ice cream? And I was so caught up in other things. This is kind of the mindset the angels have. Look, why are you just looking up? Get ready for the task at hand. Jesus, he told you what he was going to do, and he's going to come again. And you sit there in amazement, not doing anything. Now, where did Jesus go? He disappeared. He was out of sight. Where did he go? He returned to the right hand of the Father, his rightful place, where he is very much alive right now, still in his glorified body, and he's watching over and interceding for his own. So here's the final point I want to make this morning. Jesus is presently at God's right hand, watching over his children and ensuring the missional success of his disciples. 
You know, sometimes when we talk about Jesus, we, we, we talk strictly in past tense about what He accomplished, His perfect life and His death and His resurrection. And praise God, what Jesus accomplished in the past is a central focus of everything we talk about and do as a church. But Jesus was not just at work in the past. Jesus is at work right now in the present. The reason I pointed out at the beginning of this message the word began, uh, as Luke talks about the intro to Acts, is because I don't want you to think that in Luke's gospel, this is all, part one is about Jesus and part two is about us. No, part one is about Jesus and part two is, what do you think? It's about Jesus. It's about the work of the risen Christ who continues to work even now. So I think that begs the question, though, what is he doing right now? What is Jesus doing right now? Well, we know for certain that he is right now ruling the world. Not just the earth, the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're concerned about how our next president will will run the country and what's going to happen in the future and so on. And and we should be prayerful and be uh, aware of what's going on. But the real ruler of the world is not elected, and he has no political affiliation. He rules the world because he made the world. Right now, Jesus is ruling the world, governing every aspect by the good hand of his providence. Now, what else? Right now, at this moment, Jesus is praying for you. Right now, your name is on Jesus' lips right now. He's praying for you. How amazing is that? We sing the song before the throne of God above, and we sing that our Savior ever lives and pleads for us. Well, what is He praying for us? What is He pleading right now? First John tells us that Christ is our ongoing advocate, which means He represents us. He pleads our case. So to the Father, Jesus pleads our case, praying that God will continue to forgive us on the ground of Christ's sacrificial death, that it was completely enough to satisfy God's demands. And God always answers those prayers. And for us, get this, for us, what Jesus is praying right now is that we will know and rest in the completeness of His work on the cross, that we will understand fully just how loved we are, just how forgiven we are, and how accepted we are with the Father because of the work of Christ. Jesus is praying right now for you, that you would recognize that there's no sin that you will ever commit if you're in Christ or have ever committed that will separate you from the love of God. I love what one old-time theologian writes. He says, Christ's posture right now as He is in heaven, His disposition, His deepest desire is to pour His heart out on our behalf before the Father. The intercession of Christ is His heart connecting our heart to the Father's heart. So right now, as you sit there, Jesus is praying for you that you will know just how fully you are forgiven and just how completely you are loved. That's His prayer for you. That's what He's praying for me right now. And I don't know about you, but that's very, very reassuring to me. That's very comforting to know. So that on those days when I think, you know, I've really got this thing down. I mean, I'm just, I'm, just, uh, I'm just doing it all right. I'm just dominating spiritually. And on those days when I make an absolute meal of it, 
when I'm impatient with my kids and I'm unloving to my wife and I just want the cashier to ring up the items and not start a conversation. I just want to get home and I'm impatient. And the guy in front of me, for whatever reason, he's stopping at a green light. He's going so slowly, it drives me crazy. And on those days when I just make an absolute meal of it, I can know for sure that I'm loved in the very same exact way as I am on my worst days because of Christ. And I know that because Christ is praying for me that I will fully grasp it and understand it. Now, what else is Jesus doing right now? I'm going to wrap up with this. At this moment, he is protecting and building his church. He promised us in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. So right now, at this moment, he is bringing men, women, and children to saving faith. So let me dispel a myth for you. You probably heard churches everywhere are closing their doors and they're boarding up their buildings and, and Christianity is on the decline and so on. Well, there are churches that are, that are boarding up their buildings. They have refused to change. Uh, they've lost the gospel. The method has become more important than the message. And now it's a wasteland. So there are, there are churches where the buildings are being shut down. Um, but Christianity, the Christian faith is growing like it's never grown throughout all of history. Now, certainly in, it, is, it may not be growing as fast in North America, but in the rest of the world, particularly what's known as the global south, the church is growing faster than ever. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ every day because Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is still building his church. This very morning, someone in South Korea will put his faith in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of all his sins. You say, how do you know that? Because I see the way that Christianity is growing in South Korea. Before I'm done with this message, someone in Ethiopia will escape the bondage of Islam and be made alive in Christ. You say, how do you know that? Well, Christianity is growing like crazy in Africa. You know, in 1900, so we're talking about, you know, 100 plus years ago, there were 8 million Christians on the whole continent of Africa. Today, there are more than 600 million Christians on the continent of Africa. 600 million Christians. Within the hour, a lady in Iran will trust in Jesus and be adopted into God's family. And it may very well cost her her earthly family. And she may suffer as a result. Before we close our service, a church in Latin America will hold, hold its very first corporate worship gathering. How do I know this? Because Christianity is a global faith. Our God is a global God, and God is building His church all over the world. Somewhere in North Alabama this morning, someone will trust in Christ. Maybe it'll be here at Capshaw. Maybe someone goes home and the Spirit works and a person realizes, I don't really know Jesus. Maybe it's at another gospel-preaching church. Somewhere in North Alabama today, someone will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know it may not seem like it with all the tension in our world and the uncertainty and the combative nature of so many conversations. It may not seem like it, but Jesus Christ is building His church. And no tension, no division, no difference in ideology, no political ruler, no one can ever or prevent Jesus from doing what He's going to do. What does He call us to do? to tell the truth about what we know about Him. He tells those of us who have been forgiven to tell the truth about what it means to be forgiven.
What is it like to experience the forgiveness of Christ? He tells those of us who were lost and, and rebellious and, and not just totally separated from him that he's welcome to the table. He tells us to tell the truth. What's it like to be welcome to the family of God, to have God pull out the chair, so to speak, for us to sit and dine with him? He tells those of us who are encouraged and heartened by and minister to the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to tell the truth about what it means to come under the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. So God's telling us this morning to tell the truth. But before he tells us to do anything, as he always does, he tells us what he's done. He has made us alive in Christ by his spirit. He is at this very moment. Christ is praying for us. He is keeping us and he will protect us until the very end. And he wants us to be his ambassadors. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've asked us to do something that at times can be intimidating, unnerving, hard to do. And I know personally for me, when I walk up to my neighbor, I, I think, how am I going to bring this? How am I going to mention Jesus to him or her? And Father, and yet you have, in the words of Augustine, you have commanded us, but you've given what you've commanded. In other words, you've given us the ability by your Spirit, the power through your Spirit to be your ambassadors. And we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would uh, comfort us, that you would give us a boldness. And Father, even beyond boldness, I pray you'd give us a heart that cares about the lost among us, people who are apart from Christ, people who are separated from you, people who are destined for your wrath. Father, give us a heart and a compassion for those who are lost. Help us to be disciples who make other disciples. Help us to be a church that down the road plants other churches. Help us to be a people on our knees in prayer, deeply concerned about those who are around us and with deep expectation of what you will do. Father, we were lost with no hope for salvation and you found us. We were enemies, and you brought us to the table. We were hungry, and you invited us to the feast. Forgive us, Lord, of our lesser loves, and help us now in Christ. Amen. Church, you can just remain seated and sing with us.
Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Thank you, Pastor John, for dividing and proclaiming the word of the Lord for us. We're about to move into a section of our service where we contemplate a response, because whenever God's word is proclaimed, it demands a response. So as you are thinking about how you can respond to the message this morning, one way that you could do it is through giving generously. And we have several different ways to do that. You can give online. You can uh, drop it in one of the containers as you head out the door. You can mail it in even. Um, but whenever you give, and give here the capsule, that money goes to the mission to make disciples, that make disciples both here locally and abroad. Uh, one of our mission partners, they are literally at the ends of the earth. And uh, we got an update from them not long ago about they were preparing for a wedding and that this was going to be a historic wedding, that it was possibly the first time that people in this particular people group were going to have a Christian wedding, that it could have been the very first. So it was a historic time for them. Uh, so when you give, that money goes to facilitate uh, the spreading of the gospel across the world. 
Uh, and notice, too, that I said give generously. And the reason I use that intentionally is because you can't give generously and give out of obligation. You can't give generously and give out of the sense of trying to get something back, whether that be a good feeling or whether that be earning grace. But the only way that you can give generously is by giving out of what has been done for us, by realizing that we have a heavenly Father that has lavishly given to us, whether that be material items or uh, really spiritual items, that he sent his son to reconcile us back to himself, not for something that we've done, but solely because of how he loves us. So, Capshaw, as before we dismiss, uh, let's go to the word and Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll read the benediction. Uh, Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning. Thank you for uh, just pouring out your lavish grace upon us. Thank you that that allows us to join in on your mission, your mission to save the world. Uh, Father, I pray that these gifts that are given this morning, that you use them uh, to go and make disciples that make disciples. Have us be good stewards of that money. Uh, have us uh, use it where you would have us use it. Uh, Lord, I pray for those that could not be with us here this morning. I pray that if they're at home sick, that you bring them healing. I pray uh, that there will be a day when they can rejoin us here in person and we can all worship together as one church family. Father, I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, before we go this morning, uh, I want to give you one final glimpse of Christ. And so we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. If you would, stand, if you're able, for the reading of the benediction. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his, Christ, of his cross. Capshaw, go in the peace that was purchased by the cross. You're dismissed. <laughs>